Have you ever thought about the dyes used to color your clothing? If not, you should have. We'll tell you why. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Rebecca Burgess, who is an expert in this area. She's the executive director of Fibershed, a word which she coined. And this is a local resource for creating textiles for uh, dyes for textiles and clothing. So, and she's been doing this for a long time, for well over a decade, and uh, she's got some really interesting insights to share with us today. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Rebecca. Oh, thank you for having me here. It's great. I appreciate your time. So uh, it's, this is an area where many people aren't too familiar with. They don't really pay much attention to. So uh, why don't you first provide us with an understanding of your background and how you came to this area and what, why you've been doing this for the last 15 years? I started this work actually when I was asked to teach young children how to use uh, natural, well, actually, I was, I was taught to train young children in how to use dyes. I'll just put it that way. When I was in college, it was a textile arts summer program that I was in charge of in direct instruction for 10 or so nine-year-olds. And it was a summer job and it exposed me to the arts and crafts side of textile dyeing, which a lot of the ingredients for the craft dyes are the same ingredients. They're actually a better quality ingredient than what is used for industrial production. And so in the process of teaching children about color, uh, especially the color that you would make, you know, a summer camp tie-dye t-shirt with, you know, I was 19 and I was helping them use these compounds to color t-shirts. And we had to wear all these gloves and I had to wear a mask and people had to wear aprons. We couldn't let the powder get in the air. We, we were so careful once we opened these jars of powder to not get it in our lungs or not get it on our skin. Cause that's these what were the, the, these were the commercial dyes that you were using. Mm-hmm. For craft use, for anything from tie-dye to any kind of textile project. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the ingredients list wasn't very clear. The molecular breakdown of what was in the material wasn't clear, but the producers of the dyes were asking anyone who used them to be very careful with mm-hmm. inhalation and exposure, especially skin exposure, hence mm-hmm. the gloves and the masks. So um, it did kind of a light bulb went off, like, why am I having children use a material that they have to wear masks and gloves? And while we're using the material, we're making the dye, we're, you know, suited up. And then we take the t-shirt out of the bucket, we rinse it a little, and then we put the t-shirt on our bodies. Mm -hmm. So somehow it's okay to wear the stuff on your skin, but it's not okay to touch the powder. So right there, there was kind of a chasm between what seemed like solid logic in what we were willing to expose ourselves to and why we were doing what we were doing. So I started to, at that time, it was before we had Google, but I was looking into um, how, you know, searching Ask Jeeves was the search engine at the time. And I was this, looking this, this into- over 20 years ago then. Uh, wasn't around for 20 years yeah I'm well I'm 40 and so it was like 21 years ago yeah Yeah. um so yeah there was this uh this question I had about making color from something Mm -hmm. else 
And Ask Jeeves responded with, oh, you can use onion skins and cabbage and beets. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I went to the organic food co-op at UC Davis. It has a, it's a very small town and we had a little uh, member-owned co-op and I went and got all the onion skins from the bottom of the barrel and beets and cabbages. And I w- rode my bike along a green belt and I harvested blackberries and dandelion leaves. I had learned that these things too make color. And so I just started bringing food-based products into our textile program. And the kids started cutting up vegetables and putting it in pots of water, heating it up and making tie-dye t-shirts, but with cabbage, color, onion, beets, blackberries, and dandelion. And then we could take that affluent, cool it down, and then pour it back out on the lawn. Like it was tea, essentially. Or you could drink it. Or you could drink it. (laughs) Which which highlights the non-toxicity. Exactly. So I did, um, um, this, a woman at UC Davis did her master's thesis called, it was called Pandora's Box. And Mm -hmm. in my quest to find out what was in these dyes that I had been using prior to the beets, cabbage and onion skins, dandelions, blackberries, I found out that through her, this woman, I think her name was Virginia, Platt, she, this, this paper was circulating around campus. And I, I noticed she had a list of things that were in all dyes, industrial production to craft. There were these endocrine disruptors that they know are in all the industrial dyes. And all these dyes are made with fossil carbon based substances. And she pointed to the fact that it took 400 pounds of coal tar to make one ounce of blue dye. Mm. And that was the first recipe for a synthetic guy. And it was actually an, you know, an accident. This guy named William Perkins was looking for a cure for malaria and was using coal tar. And he had an explosion in his lab in like 1856. And all this purple goo landed on the walls of his lab. And then he realized that could actually be a textile dye, but it was coal tar based. So all of the dyes ever since then, the industrial revolution dye processes are fossil carbon derived and heavy metal combined. So that in itself was how we started our industrial dye process. And of course, things have evolved. There's generally, there are closed loop systems. There are processes that take the heavy metals out of the dyes. Those are called, I believe, acid dyes. But at the end of the day, all the dyes have endocrine disruptors, which are the just as you know, they scramble the body's the cells ability to communicate with each other because they scramble the hormone, I guess, balance and, you know, progesterone, estrogen, testosterone are these, they're, they're the messenger chemicals. And if those are scrambled, you can create a lot of subsequent health issues from cancer to autoimmune diseases to learning disabilities. And some people say there's multiple generation impacts that can happen. Um, So I don't know what you might call that intergenerational DNA damage that can occur, but it's very much a part of, you know, the peer reviewed science on endocrine disruption is, is very clear. And I, I just, we don't know enough about how much, how many parts per trillion parts per billion or parts per million of these endocrine disruptors are in the textiles when we're putting them on our skin because it's just an unknown body of research that who's going to pay for that. And it's not the industry. (laughs) Um, So we have an unknown, but we know we have risks. 
And we have enough science to know there are risks. And so that's why I'm a proponent of using plant-based dyes, um, which are dyes made from roots and leaves, um, things that you could eat, basically. (laughs) Yeah, and certainly uh, safe in most cases, or far safer than the ones that you mentioned, the industrially-based dyes, which can be toxic. And most of us don't tend to consider when we're purchasing clothes. Uh, and you know how that material was given its uh, color, but uh, would this be the same for the t- the dyeing process for synthetic as opposed to uh, non synthetic clothing? You know, nylon uh, versus cotton. Really good question. The synthetic dyes are used right now on all cellulosic protein and synthetic fibers. In fact. You know, even an organic cotton T-shirt, um, if it's if it's pink or green or blue, if it's not white or you know colored, grown cotton can be brown. You can produce cotton that isn't white. But you know, I've seen organic cotton T-shirts where they'll say, you know, it's it's dyed, it's synthetically dyed. We tried to use the cleanest dyes we can. <laughs> But um, then that, so you'll see people really attempting to do good things by dyeing organic cotton with the most ethical synthetic dyes they can. But at the same time, it seems a little antithetical to me to have an organic cotton t-shirt with this fossil carbon derived dye layered onto it Um, all the way through nylons and polyesters, which yes, very much, you know, those fiber systems are very consistently using azo dyes around 60 to 70% of the global use of dyes um, right now are azo and azo are some of the more hazardous dyes. They're the most difficult to clean up Um, there. They have heavy metals. Hmm. Um, These are used in most of the industrial systems today. And it's very rare. You see what we call a a GOTS, a global organic Hmm. trade standard on you know, there is got standard dyes. Yeah, and for those um, who know, that's the, the gold standard or platinum standard of or, organic. It's uh, really the best certification you can get. And it's very robust. I, I, will, I won't say anything, you know, naysaying about that standard. It's, it's actually, it's the most robust thing I have seen out there. But they do allow synthetic material, mm-hmm. but it's, it's very well regulated. And that is just for the raw material for the uh, the, the, the source. So, they uh, do they certify clothing as got certified after it's been dyed with these synthetic dyes? Oh, they yes. do. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's so it's possible to be got certified and still have a synthetic dye. As far as I have read in their most recent iteration, okay, so that of- probably is something that needs to be updated and revised. <laughs> I would think. Uh, but that goes yeah. to some other questions, which we'll discuss shortly. Uh, but before we talk about the commercial viability of that approach, I'm wondering if you could comment on your awareness of any research or studies that have looked at the transfer of these potentially toxic dyes from the clothing, the, the dyed clothing, to the skin and then into the body. Because certainly the dyes themselves are are toxic. There's no question. There's just... Uh, non-controversial, but, but the, I guess the issue becomes, does this dye get transferred from the clothing, especially after it's been washed a number of times to your body? I, I think that that's, 
That question is something that I've been asking for for over a decade. And the science that I have found is actually very dated. Um, I found <laughs> some research about children who who um, supposedly died from, they used uh, cloth diapers and they were stamped with an ink hmm. and the ink penetrated, I guess maybe the kidney area of the infant. And um, this, this science was done in the 1920s <laughs> in our diet. So I literally after that, I couldn't find any modern science that showed skin absorption had any toxic effects on the wearer um, from a synthetic dye permeating our what is our a permeable layer of our body. <clears throat> the question is how big are the molecules mm -hmm. of the dye? Can they get into the skin after we're washing the clothing? We're we're washing off what we would call the unbonded mm -hmm. molecular components of the dye, where the stuff that is bonded to the clothing does that pose a risk? Can it get into the skin if it's molecularly bonded? These are all still questions on the table. And I think that I, what, go ahead, sorry. And no one's looking at it. Virtually I have no, not at least seen not to, to your awareness. And this is really one of your passions and you're diligently searching to find these answers. And so far as you're aware, no one is examining this issue. No, I mean, if a listener has, um, has come across the research, I would be, very keen on having it forwarded to me, but we, I was producing, I was doing this research for a book in the last two years. And I even had a team working with me and I was calling reproductive health doctors at Mount Sinai and UCSF who focus a lot, especially on um, the chemical composition and health that surrounds a, a pregnant woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, fertility questions. Why are we having fertility issues? Why are children being born with higher levels of learning challenges and autism and these things? So we're, the, these women that I um, did some interviews with, they were saying, you know, we know these chemicals do really not good things and do affect mothers who are pregnant and the in utero fetus we can see there's impacts with these chemical compounds. And we know that they're in dyes. But how are they getting into the body? So how one study I thought was really interesting was um, one of the, the endocrine disruptors that causes a lot of problems um, is actually in Tylenol. You probably know about Tylenol has um, a very strong endocrine disruptor in it that reacts in the body the way a phthalate does. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it, it's it's metabolite, I guess you would say, or it metabolizes into a phthalate, and it creates um, a reduced anogenital distance, smaller penile size, less male play behavior. It really, work it, it creates a lot of problems in um, in utero male babies. Um, the exposure to this phthalate, but it actually comes through Tylenol. So there was a German study where all these women were were taken off what they considered all of the exposure to this um, this endocrine disruptor that again it shows up in, in in Tylenol and it shows up in other things and they were thinking, okay, well we'll try to reduce all the exposures we know of, and will these women's urine still be showing the metabolite? Will we still see that the endocrine disruptor is going through their system um, while we get rid of everything we can think of that would expose them to this? And um, 
again, I'm not articulating this study as well as I'd like to, because it's not my background to articulate peer-reviewed science all the time. But what was fascinating was that these women kept urinating out this endocrine disruptor. It was still coming out of their bodies, even when they eliminated all the possible exposures. And so in the paper, they say, well, one of the exposures we haven't looked at is textiles and clothing and what women are wearing. This is an area for further research. So who's doing it? We, we would really like to know because uh, it's an important thing. And so we'll just, I'll leave it with, I'm almost less concerned sometimes with skin absorption. I'm almost feeling now that the more research I do, it's actually the lint that comes off the textile. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about inhalation mm. and dust in the home. All this dust and lint is so much of it is the textile debris. So if this debris that comes off our clothing is on the floor and children are crawling on the floor or our pets are laying in it, how much of this lint with these Mm -hmm. compounds is actually something that we and our children and our pets are inhaling? Um, That's of interest to me. So Um, with that, that understanding, it might be wise to wear a little mask when you're cleaning the lint wrap from your dryer. Perhaps, yeah. yeah, yeah. So with that understanding and the toxicity of some of these dyes, would you consider it wise for having a large percentage of your clothing be white? <laughs> or are um, there some dangers with the white because of the bleaching or the processing with that? I would say, well, my recommendation for textiles is that well, you... Well, I know that you use... Com- let me rephrase that question. If you're not using organic-based natural dyes like you're, we're going to talk about in a few minutes, if you're just, and if you haven't made that leap or transition, then with the, if you're just choosing uh, among them conventionally uh, sole commercial textiles, would it be white? Yes, it would be. Often the, the clothes will say undyed or white is you know, cotton is primarily grown white and wool is grown white and most hemp, rami, linen, they bleach it with hydrogen peroxide if it's an ecological process or something a little stronger if it's not, but most textile grade fibers end up being white if they don't start that way. Mm -hmm. And that's probably the safest. The the textile I'm wearing right now is just the color of the sheep. So Mm. So that's a woven sweater that you're wearing? This is just a knit, um, like hand knit sweater. Oh, hand knit sweater. Okay. And that's the natural color of the wool from the sheep. Mm-hmm. No dye needed. Excellent. I thought I was going to ask you about that because I'm sure you're, you're uh, very uh, congruent in, in practicing what you're preaching. So you probably don't have any commercial dye clothing that you're wearing. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. So what a, it would seem to me that the most important clothing, I mean, if you're assuming there's a transfer through the skin, uh, although maybe the majority of it's through the lint, as you mentioned, through the dryer, then it becomes another issue. But if, it, if it's truly a transfer of the skin, then your underwear would probably be some of the most significantly and most important clothing that uh, you'd want to pay attention to. Would you, would, would you agree with that? From what I know of heat, uh, and water being so important in a chemical reaction, um, you know, to accelerate things, transferring and moving. 
that part of the body is, it, it, it's where it, it's just a lot goes on. It's hot, wet. It would, to me, it would be a place you would want an organic fiber. Yeah. And uh, naturally colored or uncolored fiber too, which is yes, which I, the crux of this interview. And I think that that's difficult to find. <laughs> difficult so, is probably an understatement. <laughs> um, I've, if you do search online, though, I have seen companies that do produce undyed organic cotton underwear. It, it is available. It's just not in plenty. Yeah. One of the companies is our company, which is, will be available Yay. probably by the time this interview airs. We're hoping to have it by the end of 2017. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, or uh, GOTS, is it got, what is the? GOTS. GOTS, GOTS certified organic underwear, but it's, but we're going to certainly be sure that it's not dyed. So, um, awesome. there, now you had mentioned there's these other dyes, these vegetable based uh, materials that can be used. And I'm wondering if there's any movement to implement these uh, strategies on a commercial basis or uh, it would seem that it might increase the cost and then there's maybe a reluctance to implement that on a widespread scale. So when I first started this work, I could not find any plant-based dyed garments in the marketplace. So, you know, 10 to 15, even 20 years ago, it was even going to festivals where you would see handmade items it was very difficult to find makers who were focused on vegetable dyes. Today, though, it's actually really starting to change. Um, Patagonia issued a naturally dyed uh, tank top and men's shirt in the last four weeks. Mm. And they're beautiful, um, very subtle, nuanced color because, again, vegetable and plant-based pigment are not isolating the, the one pigment, like the way a laboratory would isolate one pigment and amplify that one pigment in that canister of powder. That's really kind of one molecular structure. But in a plant or a vegetable, the pigment is actually a, a kind of a panoply of other colors. It's not just pink, there's purples and reds and there's a whole spectrum of um, compounds that create pink. So that's why I find natural dyes very beautiful, and Patagonia did too. Um, Eileen Fisher has issued a natural dye line of shirts I've seen recently for women in the last year. This is all very new. It's very exciting. Another brand, um, I'm not sure if the, the denim has been issued publicly. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry. But there is a woman in Tennessee growing a lot of indigo. Her name is Sarah Bellows and she has mm -hmm. a company called Stony Creek Color and they are producing Japanese indigo, Persicaria tinctoria at scale. And they're starting to actually use this blue pigment. They're fermenting and applying it to um, cottons for denim production at I think Cone Mills, which is one of our last large scale denim weaving facilities in the country. And I've seen jeans issued that are from this plant-based blue from Tennessee. Hmm. So I just, I think it's getting there. <laughs> so what do you think is catalyzing this interest? Did you have anything to do with it? Did your book have a, a spark in the, in the industry or is it just a 
general awareness of the toxicity of these dyes? Well, you know, I, I did spend a good 10 years pounding the pavement in boardrooms okay. uh, and in the general public, doing a lot of public outreach, um, four to five workshops a month for mm. most of my career was all about going out and teaching how to make your own natural dyes as a practice, as a cultural practice. And in tandem with that, I would say, you know, making these dyes today, it's almost like making medicinal tea. It's very easy to do. So I want to contextualize the value of this work for you. And so what I would do is share this hour long presentation on why making this tea is really of such great value to personal and global health. And I narrated it much more articulately than I'm even doing today because I was very in the the process and exercise mm -hmm. of this spiel that I would give about this is mm -hmm. how these dyes came on the scene in the industrial revolution. These are the waterways in China through tides and, and currents. We are getting exposed to pollution from other parts of the world. <clears throat> it's not just coming to us in the textiles. It's coming to us through water and air. And mm -hmm. I do think there were so many industry leaders. I mean, even when I would teach a class at a botanic garden, there were industry leaders there. I would end up running into someone who was a materials designer for Target or um, a couple of the women whose husbands were marketing at Patagonia were in my classes. And I think we're just, yeah, I mean, I'm part of, I am a, a piece of a movement. Um, but I do think that it just has been rippling out for a little over a decade. And this movement began though, really in the, in the 60s and 70s, um, natural dye traditions and textiles saw a resurgence, you know, in that era of counterculture, you know, a lot of these things, Rachel Carson's work mm -hmm. for organic food, there was an organic textile movement. It hit again in the early nineties, but it was very commercially focused, not craft focused. So I think what we're doing now is we're synthesizing the work of the commercial movement in the nineties pre-NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, organic American textile movement. We're synthesizing that with the craft movement of the 60s and 70s. And I think you're getting this industrial craft bridge now. And you're starting to see people bring artisanship into the bigger industry. And how to do that is this ongoing conversation. But I, there's many of us out there. I mean, I wrote a natural dye book in 2009. And then you saw, you know, a lot of my friends have written books since. It's beautiful. I, I'm in a whole, in the Northern California region, there's four or five of us who are, you know, pretty diligently focused on this work. <laughs> so I, I'm particularly curious as to why you're motivated to pursue this as a professional career. I, I understand your initial exposure teaching kids, nine-year-olds, uh, how to, how to, uh, naturally color their clothes with less toxic materials. But what, what catalyzed you to, to follow this professionally? Because I think most people probably would just shrug that off and go on to other things. But there's clearly something that sparked an interest for you in you for this. Hmm. It's a very good question. And it's hard to chalk it up in word because it's actually, you know, it's a, a very 
hard to put your finger on one or two sets mm -hmm. of reasons that I could say have attracted me into the work, but uh, to be so simple about it, it's beauty, um, it's a land-based connection, it's natural dyes bring you like any farming movement. So if you really take to cooking and producing food as medicine, you start to realize that food as medicine brings you off into the soil and the soil health. And you start to realize how, how nutrient dense is my food? Oh, what are the microbes in my soil? You know, how does that relate to my colon and the pharmacological realities of, you know, the health of my microbiome? You know, people who go really deep into, I think, land-based survival. I mean, food, clothing, and shelter, that's it for humans. It's their most fundamental level. And so I'm just, I'm using food as an example, because I think more people have gone down the rabbit hole of food as medicine, mm -hmm. but textiles as medicine is a part of an Ayurvedic tradition that mm -hmm. goes back longer than maybe we even know, but people say 5,000 years where wearing turmeric dyed clothes was prescribed to those who had rheumatoid arthritis. Did you not know, a, was not aware of that. What was that? I was not aware of that. It's been recently uh, reinvigorated in India as modern, salient, peer-reviewed practice. It's something that has held um, its tradition. And Ayurvedic tradition would prescribe indigo wearing those who had rigid thinking or an inability to perceive a more... Um, nuanced or dynamic future for themselves would be prescribed indigo. Um, has that stayed, has that held through double blind or whatever peer reviewed research? I don't know. <laughs> but what I mean is that there is a whole experience of textiles and connecting to land um, that you can get involved in as you, you get into natural dyes, you get into gardening, you get into soil health, you get into personal health. It's another avenue for connecting um, to these bigger cycles. Um, and so it's, it's bigger than any one human. And that's what makes it, I think, such a deep practice and something that you can dedicate your life to. So thank you for uh, expanding on that answer. I think that helps us understand your perspective a bit better. <clears throat> I'm wondering if you can elaborate on the, the soil connection uh, on the use of these commercial toxic dyes versus the natural ones, which clearly are non-toxic and are, are only going to enhance the soil microbiome and if grown in a natural way, of course, uh, not contribute to any decimation of the topsoil or the, or the soil microbiome. So with the, if you're growing a certified organic crop of indigo, one of the things that I've been doing um, is focusing on not only certified organic and biodynamic, which means I'm using as many inputs as I can from the farm itself. I'm not importing inputs. I'm focused on cycling nutrients on one land base. That's pretty much the, the very general sketch of biodynamic. So um, to add to that around soil health and natural dyes, one of my focal points is also about no-till agriculture. Mm -hmm. So really protecting the microbiome of the soil. Um, it was described to me by David Montgomery, who wrote The Hidden Half of Nature um, in a workshop a couple of weeks ago that 
when we till the soil, it's kind of like he described it as someone taking the roof of our conference that we were sitting and take the roof off and stirring the insides of the conference room. <laughs> and all the people and the chairs and everything ends up turned upside down and there's a lot of death and destruction. And he likened that to using a plow in the soil. Mm-hmm. And the air pockets in the soil are so important for the health of microbes. And that allow and water holding capacity is also created by these oxygen pockets. And so when we compact soil, when we turn it up and then compact it, when we step on it or when we put a heavy tractor across it, we're creating the conditions for less life and less diverse life in the soil means that the plants are not getting access to the same micronutrients because the fungal networks under the soil are, you know, they're, 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 the plant is giving them through root exudates access to carbohydrates and these fungal networks are eating the root exudates from the plant, taking that as fodder and fuel and going out and getting remote little micro pockets of nutrients that might exist miles and miles away from the tree or the plant and bringing these trace minerals back to the plant and this is what happens in a system that's not using nitrogen fertilizers, which is like fast food for a plant. <laughs> but when you're really allowing these air pockets and microbes and fungal networks to all really coexist, you're allowing plants to hold really all these micronutrients that, that and phytonutrients, I suppose you might call them, that, that you don't necessarily get in a system that is tilling soil using synthetic compounds. And I would say with the natural dyes, I get much stronger dye color from fewer plants if the soil is in this good health, um, which is porous soil and dynamic, has a lot of microfauna. So the same ethics that we're using for food production are around soil health are the same ethics I'm applying to my my textile farming. And I don't see textile farming is really much different from food farming and even on the land. Sure, it shouldn't be. They should all be integrated. So how big is your farm? Um, Well, it's just under an acre. Okay. Um, I just moved to a two acre site, Um, but uh, you know, it's micro. The work that I do though, primarily with my organization is help farmers who are on much larger landscapes. What was that? To teach people how to do it rather than supplying the material yourself. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, I would I would assume also that you're not monocropping in that, and that you have a wide diversity of plants to encourage diversity in the soil. Oh, for sure. This is a food fiber textile dye integrative system. It's okay. and pollinator habitat becomes part of that. Hedgerows where you're planting species of plants that harbor beneficial insects. Yeah, I mean, polyculture is just, it's creating so much more productivity and so many different things you can use, medicine, food, dye. I think polycultures are you know, the only way to go for the future. <laughs> now, it occurred to me too, when you're talking about the uh, synthetic dyes and how they were only focused on one wavelength, essentially one specific frequency, um, that it, in some ways was very similar to monocropping. Uh, and that when you had the natural pigments, you had a wider variety of wavelengths that was probably healthier from a, 
a different perspective than than the lack of phthalates or metabolites or P, uh, that would cause endocrine disruption. So there may be providing this balanced set of frequencies, which is beneficial to your body, not only when you look at it, but probably when the sun shines on it and, and passes those frequencies through the clothing into your skin. Very interesting way to think about it. I I think about the frequency too in terms of our, our eye health mm-hmm. <laughs> and just having... I think the Inuit were the ones that I learned were able to see the color. Well, it's not a color. They were able to see white Mm -hmm. as like 35 different shades. And it would help them really do whatever they need to do for hunting and survival to see how the ice really came across in all these different shades of white and nuances of white. And I think about our way of seeing colors being so oversimplified. And what is that doing to the cones of our eyes? Are we kind of devolving our abilities to perceive the natural world because we're oversimplifying the visual landscape? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. So I think it's a it's an interesting strategy and and uh, it's a perspective that I believe most of us don't give much thought to because we've got so many other issues to be concerned about. But I'm glad people like you are out there are yeah. figuring these items out to keep us healthier. So it's greatly appreciated. Thank uh, you. Now, you're the director of Fibershed, which is a word you coined, and perhaps you can explain why you came up with that and what it means and what do you think the future of this uh, path or approach might be in the next 10 years, or what's your, what's your hope, at least, for it? Well, I'll start with just what a Fibershed is. Uh, it's a strategic geography that allows one to garner, produce, farm, ranch, harvest, what you need for a textile resource base. So a fiber shed is like a food shed. A fiber shed is like a watershed. Again, it's just about what is that strategic geography that clothes you. And it's actually a question or a threshold that you would walk through to kind of exercise the notion, wow, land is responsible for clothing me. (laughs) That's one reason I created the term and the organization, because at this point, around 70% of the fiber that's in our wardrobes is synthetic and it's fossil carbon derived. So we actually have from a mainstream culture standpoint, we have a big public education job on our hands to get people to understand that as we divest from fossil carbon, as we move towards the keep it in the ground 350.org or whatever strategies that we need to rebalance our carbon cycle, we have to divest not only from fossil carbon energy systems that are fueling our residential and commercial economy, we have to divest from these modern forms of color. And we actually have to divest from these modern performance fibers that are made from fossil carbon. They're made from coal tar. And we no longer have the capacity to burn fossil carbon. There's just a saturation point from our ocean health and the acidification to 407 ppm of CO2 in our atmosphere. We've we've burned ancient sunlight and it's, you know, we have to transition. So the organization Fibershed is, you know, yes, it's this intimate idea of what is this strategic geography. It's a very ancient 
concept, but the idea is to get people to start waking up to land-based fibers. And how do we make that transition to these land-based fibers and not rely on genetic engineering or synthetic biology, which are big topics I don't know if we have time for, but I'm really trying to get to focus people on conservation breeds, resilient heirloom genetics, open pollinated sources of material, and focus our land-based systems on strengthening our place-based economies, which to me is a strategy for climate change amelioration, deacidifying the oceans, healing some of the political divide around urban and rural communities. Because when you develop, develop a fiber shed, you start to need your farming community and your fashion community to work together. Ranchers and high-end designers partnering, there's a lot of cultural healing that occurs and a lot of, oh, you're not so bad. <laughs> so have you, I didn't have you actually that. seen that? Or can you, oh, yeah. and can you give us some examples? Because that's a, a bit of a hard concept to digest. Well, um, I have worked with um, many ranchers and farmers who, even in California, don't have a lot of trust for what they would call big government. Um, mm -hmm. And they have reasons for that. Um, they also, you know, aren't really, they don't gravitate towards identity politics. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to judge this. I'm just going to describe the landscape we're on. Um, they don't identify with entitled, what they call entitlement programs. Um, they really do have a view of free market capitalism. Uh, that's the, that's the storyline about how things work and how things need to work. So <laughs> when I go to urban communities, you know, the opposite side of that coin is I will be in a design school with young people who are telling me we need to wear polyester because we can't shear sheep and sheep get injured during the shearing process. And I've seen horrible PETA films and I just don't, how, how can we wear wool and very ideologically driven ideas about what rural life is like, but never having experienced rural life. So we have a very big bridge to build. <laughs> so what I've been doing is I've been taking designers and this is how my, this fiber shed concept started was a one year wardrobe challenge where I would take design school students to farms and ranches. And the farmer and the rancher and the designer would actually work together to produce one garment from that mm -hmm. farmer ranch. And then I wore that garment for one year. I had it professionally photographed and videoed so people could see what these urban and rural collaborations were really about. And people became very friendly with each other because they had to collaborate in the making process as a team. Mm -hmm. And they were paid. I ran a Kickstarter campaign to raise enough money to help everyone do these R&D projects. Mm -hmm. And since then, we've seen businesses start. I've had ranchers come to boardrooms in urban, for urban brands that are deciding on what their climate strategy is. A rancher who wasn't so keen on talking about climate change coming to a boardroom with materials designers at a major brand, a transnational corporation, and the rancher saying, ranching and farming is a heroic process. We can be part of your climate change solution. We are land-based economies. We can sequester carbon. 
We grow material that we think is going to be of great value to your supply chain. And they're willing to get on the table and just talk openly about climate change from a rancher's perspective. And they're talking, they're driving to urban communities talking about this because really what they want is an economic tie, how to get that wool in that supply chain, how to get that organic cotton in the supply chain. And so what it does is it just opens the doors of perception around, you know, it gets you out of your head about who you think people are, and it just gives you time to be with people. Well, and it's pretty powerful, actually. I've seen a lot of transformation. <laughs> yeah, well, that sounds like a great uh, strategy. And uh, kudos to you for implementing it and catalyzing this social healing that has been occurring between these different communities. Now, <clears throat> just for clarification, when you mention ranchers, I'm assuming these are sheep ranchers, because when we hear ranchers, we typically think of horse horses. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, a lot of the ranching community I work with focuses on it could focus on goats, sheep, alpaca, okay. um, cows, horses. I mean, it's anything with a hoof. Really? So you can take hair from a cow and convert it into textiles? Well, cows are just often a part of the ranching family. Like when a, okay. when a, a large ranch is... Sure. So that you, know, so you need them all to actually improve the quality of the soil. It's... Her, holistic herd management and they integrate their large volume of nitrogen supply into the soil and graze the, the pasture and actually can create pretty massive amounts of topsoil if, if uh, done implemented properly. Now, Alan Savory's done quite a bit of work on that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah you so, understand that. Exactly. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I've been actually been, was at the first holistic herd management conference in Boulder, Colorado a few years ago with Alan Savory. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. That, so, that's the heartbeat of making this all work is. Yeah. yeah. So I just, it was a bit confused because it was, but I, so there, that, this is only one aspect of a commercial ranching operation would be the goats, which is just the, the goats and sheep uh, and alpacas. Not many, not many ranchers have alpacas, but they, they certainly could. And they can direct that as a commodity to uh, basically increase the revenue stream on their, their ranching operation. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. that's that's exciting. So yeah. do, what do you perceive the um, greatest uh, avenue for increase to be? The actual um, distribution or uh, use of these natural uh, mat materials undyed or uh, the expansion of the organically vegetably-based dyes into the commercial uh, textile industry? Well, the expansion, we've just started to see the emergence. Um, we've done a report to, to see, you know, if we were to supplant the current use of blue with plant-based blue, moving from synthetic to biosphere, Something, we would need something like 56 million hectares of indigo. So <laughs> That's a lot of indigo. <laughs> so that really points to these vegetable-based dyes are, are to be treated differently. Our consumption practices around color. Mm -hmm. We have to have a cultural conversation about how we're consuming color, mm. in my opinion. Um, can we base that conversation on 
what previous cultures have done because these synthetic dyes have only been available for a relatively short time and yet we've had colored clothing for millennia. Exactly. And so what it comes down to, yes, I think that's a going back to the ancients, the pre-fossil carbon textile programs. <laughs> you know, in Europe, people were wearing nettle, flax, and sheep's wool. In North Africa, they were wearing cotton. In South America, they were wearing cotton. In India and China, they were wearing cotton and hemp. Um, Europe had hemp as well. But those materials were undyed. And so you would just wear the color of the raw fiber. And the sheep's wool in particular comes in such an amazing schema of color from black all, all the way through the tones of gray, shades of gray, brown, all the shades of brown, um, cream colors, and of course, white. Mm -hmm. But you don't need to really dye the wool of a sheep. And you can use that and blend it with nettle or flax or hemp. And you can create really dynamic heathering processes by how you spin the fibers together. So my solution, I think, you know, you're already speaking to it is just actually use the color of the material as it comes mm -hmm. off the plant and not really have to add too much more color to that. And then the last thing I'll say about the vegetable matter and how we can increase access to natural dyes might be using materials that are on their way to being composted. Mm -hmm. So avocado pits, um, oh, the no, water that color, you... What color does an avocado pit make? <laughs> Pink. Really? Who would have yeah. known? I had no idea. I know. It's... And almost and... every... I, mean, I go through one or two avocados a day, sometimes three. And that's a lot, you know, so that adds up pretty quickly. I had no idea you could make a dye out of that. It's beautiful. Um, there's a book called um, Natural Dyes by Sasha Dewar. She's an artist I work with. She's in um, Oakland. And her book that just came out has some really nice um, processes around avocado pit dye. And if you look up Sasha Dewar, she, she really... How, how do you spell it. that? D-U-E-R-R, -R, Dewar. Okay. Right. Um, yeah, she has some beautiful imagery on all of her social media profiles of her avocado pit dye. It's been wow. a recipe since the 70s and 80s, Never as far as that. I can tell. So you just grind it up, the pits, and then somehow mix it with a solvent? I just quarter the pit, and I yeah. put it in a pot of water, and I put a little alkaline, like baking soda, mm -hmm. or oyster shells, something to alkalize. Yeah, baking soda is the simplest one. Yeah, and baking soda. And so then it, um, I just heat it up to about 180 degrees for half an hour, 45 minutes. And that's pre-boiling. Mm -hmm. And that, that pretty much will yield the, the pink. It'll start coming out of the, of the avocado. Fascinating. It's giving me some good ideas because we're going to be making these or have a whole line of organic clothing coming this fall. So we'll, we'll have to clearly make some really interesting prescriptions for how to, or directions on how to make pink clothing from avocado pits. That is just extraordinary. It's beautiful process. And onion skins is another compostable. They could use that. So if you wanted, before you issue your line, I mean, or during the process, I can give you a list of resources that people oh, that would buy. Be great. Yeah, that would be really good. And yeah, we'll have to get that together. And timing's really good because 
<clears throat> this interview should air about the time that our clothing line is released. So, oh, perfect! I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about this. It's uh, "Care What You Wear" is the name of the campaign. So, oh, Regeneration International. Yes. Yeah. Good. That's, actually, the profits from the sale of, of the clothing is going to support Regeneration International. Wonderful. Yeah. So. Yeah, we we try to walk our talk. Thank when you. When we're teaching this, so good. Well, so, the uh, one thing I just—I don't think I answered your question about the vision for our future with this. Yeah, one. yeah, no, you didn't. You, 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 but you, you had so much other good information in there. It didn't almost matter, but that was good. So, why did you? What is the vision for ten years from now? Uh, the vision for ten years is which something I share with Regeneration International and others who are focused on ameliorating the climate crisis through building soil organic carbon, which is a lot of us out there now, um, that these fiber shed systems are, that we think about them like food sheds and watersheds. We organize around soil and water availability. We don't engineer nature to do its bidding. We work in harmony with these processes that are in existence. We enhance water holding capacity and dry brittle systems so that we can produce what we need, even in areas where there's 10 inches or less of rainfall per year. And these are systems that if we enhance their productivity through natural mechanisms, I think that we will, again, these natural productive states create local economies. When you have something you can grow, you have something you can eat, you can have something you can wear, then you have something you can trade. So if we can restore earth's soils, restore these waters, I think one of the lenses for doing that work is actually approaching it. Like we wanna create more jobs in rural communities. We want these people to feel taken care of and nurtured, and we want to be buying things from them and supporting their good work on the land. And so I think our work in 10 years is to really see these cultural political bridges built through, through trading, through exchanging, but all on the foundation of these restored soils. And through these regenerated social bio cultural economies, we then trade with each other from strength and not from the lowest common denominator imperial attitude, which is... I'm going to use this community to produce clothing for me for 10 years until they decide to create a labor union. And then I'm going to throw them over my shoulder like a chicken bone. And then I'm off to Cambodia and then I'm in Vietnam and then I'm in the Indonesian archipelago. That's been the textile industry. It just keeps running to the lowest common denominator and leaving a wake of destruction in its path. And so we're trying to reverse that trend of imperial exploitation by focusing even white people <laughs> on how to work and how to be part of a community that works and labors in a meaningful way on the land and with each other. And of course, some of us aren't gonna work on the land, but we can consume things from the land with an educated mind and a thoughtful way of approaching consumerism. Yes, so. indeed. Well, I think you've nailed a lot of good points uh, right on the head. And one of them being is that we have to change the consciousness around the fashion industry. I mean, it's just we, we've aired a few documentaries on this and this and uh, certainly the uh, new interest in minimalism now and how rapidly people go through clothing is just it's just 
it's non-sustainable, first of all, and it's just ruining everything. I mean, there's no reason to, to dispose of clothes like people are doing and change fashions all the time. But there's this whole pretty uh, aggressive industry built around it. It supports it. So hopefully, yeah. you know, your type of your work and others will help to shift that consciousness around it because it's desperately needed. And I really am enamored with your concept of uh, creating these local communities because uh, one of the facts that we didn't uh, mention, but it's sort of the elephant in the room, is that the advent of artificial intelligence and robots is, is rapidly increasing. And in about 10 years or so, there's going to be a lot of jobs that are lost. And they are. I don't really perceive, certainly not this century, that that technology will ever to be, ever be able to replace what you just discussed. It's just not possible. I, I, I mean, I just maybe next century. You know, who knows? I mean, it's so so hard to think about anything beyond ten or twenty years. But because yeah. technology develops so quickly, but I, it really is. You described a great model that people can shift to as technology starts taking away their jobs. Yes, as far as I know, the cost benefit of creating an AI system or a robotic system for um, making natural dyes in your backyard. There's no cost benefit for venture capitalists to no. automate. No, no competition. <laughs> yeah, it, it's hard to, you, it just couldn't do it. I, it's even difficult to imagine how it would. I'm sure at some point they will be able to do it, but it's. I don't think it's this century. So it's generations beyond us. Yes. And, and we need to just also think about where we're at, like in our frontal lobe and our human evolution. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of like, if you just give us, if you just put everyone out of work this fast, you know, you're going to have some serious issues with like our democracy, our mm -hmm. <laughs> civil society. I mean, there's a domino effect that no I think. No question. Most people aren't even thinking about it. I mean, it's, no, they're it's, just saying, oh, isn't it so great? We can patent and, you know, keep centralizing capital in these, um, you know, another patentable space for capital to accrue more capital. That's about all I can see their motivation being. Um, oh, and they say things like humans, I've heard technologists say humans should just be doing beautiful things like yoga and art. Well, <laughs> I agree that that's a very nice vision, but I don't think that's why you're doing this. You know, like, no. I think it's, I, it's, it smells funny to me when I hear things like that. <laughs> no, it's a, who knows if anything's possible, but it certainly hasn't been consistent with the, the history of humankind where we really need to endeavor in areas where we're providing value to our fellow human beings. So uh, I uh, greatly appreciate, and it's been really uh, been an enlightening conversation, uh, certainly areas that we don't normally explore. And I applaud your efforts in this area and your, your uh, commitment to making changes. And you've written a best-selling book called Harvesting Color, which is available, I'm assuming, online at Amazon or any other bookstore that you would choose to use. So it's definitely... Uh, one to look at if you have an interest in this in this uh, uh, area. But do you, could you recommend any other resources? Um, I would recommend uh, the books by Christine Vehar, A Modern Natural Dyer, and uh, Sasha Dewar's book, uh, Natural Dyes. And the November 11th event, 
we it's an annual uh, wool and fine fiber symposium. The why the reason why we call it that is because we really want this to be a land based symposia that focuses on meeting and greeting the people in our community that grow raw materials, fiber and dye. But this year's event is focused on nature's resilience, illuminating the processes and cycles that clothe us. And we're bringing in oceanographers and biogeochemists to talk about the health of the whole global carbon and hydrologic systems and contextualizing the ranching and farming work in these larger um, larger picture uh, scenarios. So I think it's a, it's a great event on November 11th, the Wool Symposium and Point Race Station, which is- and how, how um, do people find out about it? There's you can go to Fibershed, www.fibershed.org. Okay, and .org, not .com, Fibershed, .org. just like it sounds, Fibershed.org. Fibershed.org, yeah. Wow, that's and, great. So that, that would be the one the way to come and meet everyone in person and um, some Fibershed community organizers from the Pacific Northwest will be there and different areas of the country, Montana. People come in from other communities that are trying to do this work. So it's a great time to meet an audience that's focused on. Well, hopefully this. we'll ask some of our viewers who uh, take us up on your offer and or take you up on your offer and come out and visit. It sounds like a very worthwhile event. Thank you. I hope to see people there. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, so any other resources or, or summaries that you'd like to make? I think people can just go to our website. We uh, are at fibershed.org and there's mm -hmm. all of our textile research, economic feasibility studies on regenerative agriculture and how to tie the monetary and carbon cycles together all the work we've done on land-based economic development, a lot of the studies and analysis are on our website. So if people want to dig deeper in how to make this work, we've done a lot of work to explore how to do it. And we've put some businesses on the ground already. And there's a whole list. There's 140 different independent artists and farmers who you can read about who are doing this work. Okay. Well, yeah. thank you for your work and for your passion in this and, really helping educate the uh, the world and you know your local communities and the, the really compelling vision of how you can bring healing to the world through some simple strategies so thank you avocado pits avocado pits all the way <laughs> all right well thanks thanks a lot thank you